Well, we are, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of John, and I, I'll mention it. I know I've mentioned it every week, but we're, uh, we're in the process of journaling through the book of John together. And to that end, we actually ordered copies of the Gospel of John with journaling pages that we want to distribute to everybody who considers this their church home. So if, you're, uh, if you haven't gotten a copy of that, we ordered a bunch more, and they came in last week. And so uh, make sure you pick one of those up. We'd love for you to sort of be in that process with us, kind of a fun thing we can do together. We're continuing in John chapter 1 and picking up in verse 29. If you were with us last week, you know that uh, John had sort of entered into the narrative portion of the gospel here by uh, starting where many of the gospel writers do, starting with John the Baptist, talking about the witness of John the Baptist. And in particular, last week, uh, we were looking at the idea of what John the Baptist said about himself. We saw a delegation that came from the priests and the Levites that said, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that Moses talked about? Are you the Messiah? John says, no, I'm none of those things. I'm just... I'm just a voice, like Isaiah said, crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. I'm basically just here as a flashing sign trying to point people to Christ, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, John the Baptist says, but you all, he says to the priests and Levites, you're so preoccupied about what I'm doing that you can't even see Jesus in your midst. He's standing among us, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. You don't even recognize him because you're so caught up in the wrong things. Now, as we move into John 1, 29 and following, what we see here is actually the, more of the heart, the content of what John the Baptist's testimony looked like. One of the things I love about this morning, and we didn't plan this in advance, but we did child dedications at the beginning of the service. That will come as a shock to many of you. Uh, at the beginning of the service, we did child dedications. That was a jab. I was jab. Yeah, a little bit of a jab. It's fine. Uh, we, we did child dedications, and one of the things I love about child dedications is, is that it's not just a family saying, hey, we want to let you all know that it is our intention to raise our child in the knowledge of Christ and that, that they would grow to love and know Christ. But it's also a family saying, hey, we consider all of you family as well and we're wanting you to, to be a witness and a testimony to our child as well. We want to do this in collaboration. We don't want to do it in isolation. And so we're bringing our child up here. We're acknowledging God gave us this baby. We want to raise him in the knowledge of, of who God is. And we want you to be with us in that. And there's a moment in our child dedication where we look at the congregation and say, will you commit to, to endeavoring to see this child raised in the knowledge of Christ as well? And we all say yes. And I like the fact that that's a collaborative effort, that we're all committing that way. One of the things I want to make sure I bring to your mind as we enter into the text this morning is this. That while we're seeing John the Baptist witness and we're seeing his testimony, and there's a lot that we can learn as individuals about what our witness should look like by modeling our witness after his, it's really important as we begin to understand that the witness of John the Baptist, the testimony of John the Baptist, is not a witness made in isolation. It's not a solitary witness. It's a witness that comes in collaboration, and that will make more sense as we get further in. But as we begin this morning, let's just look at the content of his message. There are a couple of things I want us to see right out of the gate about John the Baptist and what he's declaring. So it says in John 1, 29 and following, the next day, he, that's John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness 
that this is the Son of God. The first thing I want us to notice this morning as we look at the testimony or the witness of John the Baptist in an effort to sort of model that in our own life is that Jesus is at the heart of the witness or the testimony of John the Baptist. And that might seem like it doesn't even need to be said, but it's important as we begin to say the heart of his message, it was a, it was a gospel-centered, a Jesus-centered message. When John the Baptist preached, we know from the other accounts that he was calling people to repentance, but he was always calling them to a repentance in preparation for the, the arrival of the Messiah, right? He was always calling them to turn, and he wasn't baptizing Gentiles into the Jewish faith. He was actually calling Jewish people to turn around, to repent of their sin in preparation for the arrival of Christ. But the first thing you want to note here is that Jesus is at the heart of the message of John the Baptist, and so should he be at the heart of our message as well. There are a lot of things we could preach, right? There are a lot of things John the Baptist could have focused on. There are a lot of things he could have said. But at the core of what he wants to communicate to people is, look up, behold, right? Look up and see the Lamb of God in front of you. Don't miss him. It's funny, when I even read the word behold, I love the idea of drawing people's attention to something. And in fact, as a guy who has a calling to evangelism in my own life, there are very few things that I love doing more in my life than telling other people about Jesus. But there isn't a time that I ever say behold Jesus or hey, let me tell you about Jesus that I don't begin by sort of needing to speak that message to myself. When I look at John 1, 29 and 30 and I hear John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God, there's a part of me as a, as a pastor that sort of recognizes that before he's ever saying, behold the Lamb of God to anyone else, he has to begin by saying, behold the Lamb of God to himself. That the gospel message that comes out of us begins with our own beholding. Does that make sense? That we cannot declare to other people, hey, you need to take a look at Jesus without first recognizing in our own lives how desperately we need to behold the Lamb of God. And so he calls them to behold. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And and the idea even of the Lamb of God, this is a really beautiful title, but it's also a a kind of a terrifying title for Jesus. When you hear uh, the Lamb of God, if you don't know anything about the context, you, you might think, oh, that's so sweet. He's referring to Jesus, right? The lamb of God, so fluffy and meek and mild. Don't you just want to scoop him up in your arms and pet the lamb of God? He's just so comfy and cozy and whatever. Like, look, when he talks about the lamb of God, it's important for you to understand that he wasn't referring to Jesus as meek and mild, right? In this particular case, we understand from the context of John more broadly that it's very close to Passover time. And so when John looks at the crowd around him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, when they think about the Lamb of God, they're not thinking about a cute, fluffy little animal. They're thinking about a sacrifice because Passover is right here. They immediately were drawn to thinking about Exodus 12. And if you know anything about the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, you know that in Exodus 12, God calls to the people of Israel and he says, hey, at the final of the plagues will be the plague of the angel of death. And if you don't take a spotless lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood of that animal and put it on the doorpost of your home, then you will lose the firstborn of every, of every member of your family, right? Your animals and your children will die if that blood isn't a covering for you. And so for the Jewish people, when he says the lamb of God, they don't immediately think of something cute and fluffy. They think of sacrifice and slaughter. They think of bloodshed and death. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And that's actually a pretty terrifying image because here what we see in front of us is God incarnate. But we see a man and he's the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God whose blood will be shed. That's what John is communicating. 
Not only would a Hebrew audience have thought about Exodus 12, they also probably would have thought about Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, may be familiar to you, may not be, that's irrelevant, but in Genesis 22, we see God call Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and I want you to take him up onto the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me there. And so Abraham does what God tells him to do. He takes his son Isaac and they start to head up the mountain. And there's, there's actually a heartbreaking moment in Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, where Isaac looks at Abraham and he says, Dad, we have the fire, we have the wood, we have everything else we need for the sacrifice. But you know what? Stupid us. We forgot the animal. We don't have anything to sacrifice. And in Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham looks at his son Isaac and he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And we know from the end of the story that God did just that, that when Abraham raised the knife to slay his son, that God stayed his hand and provided a ram in the thicket, a substitute, a sacrifice. So when John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God, he's, he's talking back to the prophecy that was displayed in Abraham. He's looking back at the story of the Exodus and the blood on the post that they would celebrate at Passover time. He's also pointing directly to the prophecies of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, we see messianic prophecy that refers to the Messiah as a lamb. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 says this. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see the foreshadowing of Jesus in the story of Abraham. We see the application of the sacrifice and the substitute of the lamb in Exodus chapter 12. We see the messianic prophecy of the Messiah being led like a lamb in Isaiah 53. Now we come to John chapter 1 verses 29 and 30 and we see the lamb being identified. It's been prophesied. We understand the application and now the lamb that God had talked about before is being identified before our eyes. Not only that, but there is the preparation for then the glorification of the lamb that happens in Revelation chapter 5. At the very end of human history on earth, we see this celebration. In Revelation chapter 5, John writes again in verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living, excuse me, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So John the Baptist has the unique opportunity to identify the lamb that was talked about in the Old Testament, that was foreshadowed in the prophecies, and that will be worshipped and glorified in Revelation 5. John says, this is the lamb. This is the lamb. And not only does he say, behold the lamb of God, but he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That also would have been significant. It would have been significant because what we understand from Hebrews chapter 10, which we studied last year, is that the sacrificial system that the Hebrews went through, it never actually took away their sin. It didn't ever do anything for their guilt and their shame. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, Hebrews 10, 11, says every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. The work was finished. 
John the Baptist in John has a Jesus-centered message, and the message is of the Lamb of God, the sacrificial substitute of God, who would shed his blood on our behalf and extend to us by his grace resurrection life. This very same Lamb who will be celebrated by myriads of angels as the only one worthy of glory and honor. And as John the Baptist's message was centered on the Lord Jesus, so should our message be centered on the Lord Jesus. As fellow witnesses and fellow ambassadors, our call also must be to be centered and focused on Christ because he's the only one that has the ability to take away sin. He's the only one who can make a significant difference in the lives of other people. And we're going to see as we continue that that emphasis is vital. But here in John chapter 1, not only do we see that his emphasis is on Christ, that he's got a gospel or a Jesus-centered message, the other thing I want you to see is that his witness or his testimony is personal, right? It's not just information he thinks other people need to hear. He's not just sort of calculated a message and said, oh, I see who's in the crowd. You guys need to know about the Lamb of God. Go back to John chapter 1 and look at the way in which John's message flows out of his experience, It flows out of what he himself has seen and heard. So this is John 1, verse 30. John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The second thing I want you to see about John the Baptist's message or about his testimony is that it wasn't something he just concocted for other people. It wasn't a message that he thought, oh, this is good for other people to understand. He's sharing with them something he himself experienced, and he has the humility And the transparency and the vulnerability to say, look, I didn't get this myself at first, right? I didn't know that this was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God revealed that to me, and he tells us how that went down. But I love the fact that he speaks from a place of his personal experience. Because I think many times in our lives as Christians, we're trying to communicate the truth of God's word or the truth of who Jesus is to people in ways that we think they need to hear rather than in reflecting ways in which God has spoken to us. Does that make sense? A lot of times we want to share with people what we think they need rather than saying this is what God has done in me. It's vital to read in, in, the, in the writings of Peter where he says, you and I are a chosen race, we're a holy priesthood, that we've been called to declare the excellencies of him who drew us out of the darkness and into the light. I think many Christians, we, we sort of like telling people we're in the light. We like telling people we have a relationship with God. We like telling people that we're forgiven or that, you know, whatever. But I don't know that we necessarily like telling the whole of the story. That there was a point for each and every one of us where we were in the darkness, that there's a point for each and every one of us where we didn't get it, where we didn't understand, where in our brokenness we were cut off and separated from God. And yet the totality of that story is essential to our witness as is demonstrated by John the Baptist. He doesn't just say, here's the Lamb of God that you need. He goes, hey, let me be honest. I myself didn't see him. I mean, John and Jesus are cousins, right? We know that, they're, that their mothers were sisters. So what he's essentially saying is, I knew who Jesus was. Our, we're, we're family, but I didn't know that he was the Messiah, that he was the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world until that truth was revealed to me. There was a moment in my own life where I was still oblivious to it. And yet God revealed it to me, and the way God revealed it to John the Baptist was through his baptism. Now, 
In the Gospel of John, we don't see the narrative of the baptism. That's something that John omits because it's been adequately covered in the other Gospels. But what John does is he adds a little bit of extra information. So in Matthew chapter 3, when we see the story of the baptism of Christ, let's just look at it together. Matthew three thirteen and following. Listen to the way it's described. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That might be a story that's familiar to you, the baptism of Jesus. And we see that the heavens were opened and that Jesus was aware of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and resting on Christ. What we don't see in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is this further detail that John gives us where we understand that not only did Jesus see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, but John the Baptist saw the Spirit descending like a dove, and that dissension of the Spirit of God and it remaining on Christ was actually indicative. It was a sign that God gave to John the Baptist to confirm the truth of who the Messiah was. So what John the Baptist is saying in John chapter 1 is, there was a time where I didn't know who Jesus was either, but the one who sent me to baptize with water, who's that? That's God. God said to me, when you see the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, right? And that remaining is important because it was prophesied in Isaiah. Sorry, a little bit of a side trail here. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on the Messiah in a way that was unique, right? We see in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God was sort of intermittent with the people of God, that there were times where they had to cry out for the Spirit of God not to leave them, but to remain on them. What it says in Isaiah is that the the Spirit of God will remain, will abide. The word there is translated mino. It will remain on the Messiah. So John says, God told me, the one whom you see the Spirit descend like a dove and remain on, that is the one who won't just baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The one who baptized with the Holy Spirit is vital and important also because in Ezekiel it had said in God's new arrangement with people that no longer would we have God's law on stone tablets but that he'd write the law on our hearts and that he would put his spirit within us, that we would be submerged or that we would be overwhelmed. We say indwelt, that we would be filled with God's spirit in a way that his people never had been before because of the work of the Messiah. So God says to John the Baptist, the one on whom my spirit remains will also have the ability to submerge or to overwhelm everyone with the Holy Spirit in the same way that you've been dunking them in the water. It says in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now you might go, what what difference does any of this make? Well, it makes a difference because what we see is John speaking out of his own experience. John declaring the truth of who the Lamb of God is from what he himself has had declared to him by God. So he's able to look at the crowd and say, if some of you are confused, or if some of you don't get it, or you look at this man Jesus and you don't see the Messiah you've been waiting for, I get it. I've been there. But God spoke to me, and the Holy Spirit confirmed it, and I can say without question in my own experience, this is the Word of God, or excuse me, the Son of God, as confirmed by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
Not only is his message Jesus-centered, but his message is personal. There's a personal piece to it. And then thirdly, when we look at the message in the ministry of John the Baptist, the last thing I want you to see is that his testimony or his witness is selfless. It's selfless. And you might go, well, how do you know that? Well, let's read on a little bit. I want you to see what this looks like here. In verse 34, John says, I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Verse 35, it says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's two of John the Baptist's disciples, right? At this point, John the Baptist has disciples of his own, people that were following him. And John is standing there with two of his disciples. And he says, in verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked by... And John said, behold the Lamb of God. It's worth noting here, I love the fact that when it describes John's message, it's the very same message. There's no innovation. He didn't come up with some flashy new way to package the message. There's there's nothing goofy here. It's just John going, there he is again, the Lamb of God. I told you yesterday, look and see the Lamb of God. There he is today, look and see the Lamb of God. There is redundancy, but it's beautiful redundancy. It speaks to the fact that he's centered on who Christ is. John standing with two of his disciples. Jesus walks by. John says, behold the Lamb of God, and look what happens. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, right? At the end of this particular story, what we see is John the Baptist standing by himself, right? He was with two of his disciples, and now they're gone. Why? Because they left him to follow Jesus. Here's what's really interesting, We don't hear John the Baptist bemoan that at all. We don't hear him argue. We don't hear him try and woo them back. We don't hear John the Baptist go, hey, it's cool for you guys to spend some time with Jesus. Just make sure you're back by eight o'clock because we got some John the Baptist stuff to do, right? We got some people to dunk and we got some forms to fill out, whatever. No, John the Baptist is thrilled, and we'll see that more in John chapter three, but John the Baptist is thrilled that his disciples would abandon him to follow Jesus. Why? Because the goal of John the Baptist's ministry was never to bring people to himself, but always to bring them to Christ. Let me tell you, there's a selflessness in John the Baptist. He is always preparing them to leave. We talk about raising children and dedicating them to the Lord, but in some ways, parenting is a preparation for separation, right? It's a preparation for the time when they will, when they will leave the home. Hopefully, they're not like 38 years old playing Xbox in the basement, right? That sooner or later they're going to roll out and all of what you've done is a preparation for them to go. John the Baptist sees his ministry and his message as a preparation for people to stop following John the Baptist. Can I tell you that the goal of all preaching, the goal of all Christian ministry, the goal of what we're doing here on a Sunday morning is to glorify God that no one would be focused on this building or on our services or on our programs or on our staff. If I'm drawing people to myself, I am setting them up for disappointment. If we're drawing people to our programs, or we're drawing people to our facilities, or we're drawing people to whatever other than Jesus, we are setting them up for disappointment because all of those other things are broken. You spend enough time with me, come out to lunch with me, I'll prove it to you. I'm broken, right? I don't want to be drawing people to myself John the Baptist was stoked. In fact, you could say that the way to be the best possible disciple of John the Baptist was to stop being a disciple of John the Baptist. Does that make sense? That that was his goal, to lead people away from himself. Look, you and I, those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room, we have to be very careful that we're not winning people to ourselves. 
that we're not winning people over to our cleverness, that we're not winning people over to our winsome personality, that we're not winning people over to our charisma or whatever, but that we're constantly redirecting people toward Christ. Behold the Lamb of God and encouraging them to walk away from us to follow Jesus. There are, all kinds of, there are all kinds of ways in which this is being poorly done in our world today, where people are being drawn to other humans, either through their writings or through their teachings or whatever. You and I, we have to live lives that are deflective. John the Baptist was selfless. So we see this incredible mission. We see this incredible witness that is both Jesus-centered, that is personal in its testimony, and that is selfless in that it's turning people loose that it's releasing them and pushing them towards following Christ. And that's, that's valuable because John the Baptist is not the only witness we see in the text. So not only do we see the witness of John the Baptist in this particular text, but we also, in more subtle ways, see the witness of the Lord Jesus himself. Now John has already told us in John chapter 1, verse 18, we read it a couple of weeks ago, that no one has ever seen God, but the Son, the light of the world, the Word of God made manifest, that one and only who sits at the right hand of the Father has made him known. That's what John 1.18 says. No one's ever seen God, but Jesus makes him known. What does that mean? It means Jesus himself is a witness of what God is like, right? You want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. So in this text, not only do we see the witness of John the Baptist, but in more subtle ways, we also see the witness of Jesus. And we can start with something really subtle. You might have missed it. But look at John 1, 29. Jesus is showing us something about God, even in the way he moves towards people. It says in John 1, 29 that John saw Jesus, what? Coming toward him. Coming toward him. Now, you might have read past that really quick and not thought anything of it. I want you to stop for a second and think about what this means. Jesus has made God known, and one of the things he makes known about God is that our God is a God who is initiative, uh, he's redemptive in his initiative. Does that make sense? Redemptively initiative? I don't know, don't, don't worry about that. But God, God takes the initiative, he moves towards us. Listen, God isn't hiding, hoping you'll find him. God hasn't hidden himself in a cave and he set up a system of elaborate clues that you can decipher if you go and look at classic oil paintings and you peel them away and you pot. God's not on a treasure hunt with you, right? He's not hiding in a bunker at the bottom of the ocean and you gotta rent a submarine and go down there and find him. Listen, God knows that you and I need him and that we cannot save ourselves. He knows that we're broken and hurting and God moves toward us. He moves toward the broken. He moves towards those who are seeking him, Right? He's active in taking that initiative. Our God is not passive. And you can go, well, you can't really use this as a proof text for the fact that God moves toward us. That's true. I can use the incarnation as proof that God moves toward us. The fact that Jesus didn't consider equality something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became a human, humbled himself to the point of death. That movement toward mankind is proof that God doesn't need you to chase him. He's coming toward you. He's moving toward you. That God hasn't set up an elaborate treasure hunt for you to try and decipher and solve. If you're here this morning and maybe you wandered into this place because you're hurt and broken and lost and you're wondering what in the world this is all about and you need to know God is there and that he has a purpose for your life and that he loves you, the great news for you this morning is that same God that you feel like you're moving toward has been moving toward you first. That he has answers for your questions. Jesus is coming toward them. It says later in the text that as John was standing with his disciples, Jesus was walking by. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Why is Jesus walking by, right? What's he doing out there? Maybe he went out to hear John the Baptist preach. I don't know. 
But the fact that Jesus is present, he moves towards us. That's a great reminder for us as well. Our God is a God of initiative, redemptive initiative. He's a God that moves towards us. And so as his disciples, as his witnesses, as his ambassadors, we also need to take the initiative. I think sometimes Christians make the mistake of going, oh, you know, yeah, I know there's people who are hurting and I know they're broken. There's lots of pain in the world. And if they want to be healed, they can come in here. We're here every Sunday at 8.30 and 10 and 11.30. And if they want to get, you know, some, some answers, they can come and find them right here. Listen, that's not how God works. God moves towards people in pain. He moves towards the lost in the incarnation. We as his ambassadors need to take the initiative. We need to be moving towards those who know who need to know him. Not only that, Jesus also witnesses a couple of other things. He's a witness to a couple of other things. Look, look at what happens next. It says this, uh, John says, behold the Lamb of God in verse 36. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Full stop here for a second. I want you to think about the question that Jesus asks. Jesus looks at these two men that are following him and he says, what are you seeking? That could just as easily be translated, what are you after? Or what do you want? What are you hungry for? Jesus is asking them a question about what it is they desire. Why are you here? Why are you here, Jesus says. And the reason why it's worth stopping to note is that it tells us something about God and God's heart for his people. You see, Jesus doesn't look at these disciples and go, hey, what family do you come from? He doesn't look at them and say, what do you want to know? You have some questions about the creation of the universe. You have some questions about the nature of God. You have some questions about predestination. You have some questions about, go ahead and ask me. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's time for you to you know, play Bible answer guy, and I'll give you the answer to your questions. He doesn't look at them and say, what do you want to know? He doesn't look at them and say, what do you already know? He doesn't say, what are you feeling? He doesn't say, what have you experienced? He doesn't say, what family are you coming from? He looks at them and says, what do you want? Why? Because God isn't just after our heads. This whole thing is not just a preparation for some sort of cosmic Bible trivia game where we come on Sundays and we learn a bunch of information and then someday God's gonna ask us and we wanna have the right answers. That's never gonna happen. What is it we're doing here? I mean, let's stop and ask yourself this morning, church, why are you here? It's an important question. It's a question that if, if Jesus stood in front of you this morning, he would look at you and ask, what are you doing here? What are you seeking? What are you after? What are you hungry for? You see, because there are all kinds of people who know all the right stuff about God. They know all the right answers. They've been through all the right missions trips. They've been through all the right training courses. And they want the wrong things. And knowing the right stuff doesn't make a lick of a difference. Can I tell you that as a church... And as a, as a witness to who Christ is in this community, we cannot be about just making sure people have the right stuff in their head. We have to see God, by his holy power, transform what people are hungry for. If this was a church filled of people who were hungry for more of Jesus, our city would be transformed. The reality is there's all kinds of other things that bring us here. When you answer the question, why are you here? Some of you are here out of guilt. Some of you are here out of obligation. Some of you are here because you think that's what good Christians do. Some of you are here because you like the social nature of it. Some of you are here because you like Christian songs. Some of you are here because you want me to tell you a joke. Some of you are here because you want your, your kids in Christian you know, Sunday school classes, right? There's all kinds of things that you may be seeking, but if Jesus isn't the answer to what you're seeking, you won't stick around. 
And so as a ministry and as a shepherd, as a pastor, and then as individual witnesses and in our collaborative witness, what we have to be focused on is helping people answer the question, what are you hungry for? What are you seeking? God is more interested in what's going on in our hearts than he is what's going on in our heads. And if our hearts are focused on the right things, our heads will come along. Does that make sense? Jesus looks at these disciples and he tells us something about God, that God is interested to be what you're hungry for, to be what you're seeking, not just someplace you can come and find answers. Interestingly enough, and I'm almost out of time here, uh, I, I absolutely, absolutely hate their answer to the question. It's a, their, their answer to the question really sucks. So here we go. Uh, he says... Jesus turned and saw them, this is verse 38, turned, saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Eh, right? We like to know, are you, uh, you got a tent around here somewhere? Or you got a little, uh, like, a, like a grandmother cottage behind, behind somebody's house? You got a little apartment over a storefront? Or we just, we're just interested to know, like, where you sleep at night and uh, you got some stew on or whatever? Just take us there. Listen, I, I don't want to... I don't want to pick it apart too much. Maybe these guys are saying, hey, tell us where you're staying so that we can follow you there and be there with you and be your disciples. Maybe, maybe there's some deep spiritual insight happening right there. But to me, it feels like they get asked a question and they're not prepared to answer it. And so they just say the first thing that comes to their minds, right? He goes, what are you seeking? And they're like, well, we've been recently discussing how interested we are in where are you sleeping at night, Right? <laughs> It's a, dumb, it's a dumb thing for them to ask, right? It's a dumb thing, for them, in my opinion, my humble opinion. I stand to be corrected. If I get into heaven and Andrew wants to come and be like, hey, why'd you call me stupid? I'll take that, right? <laughs> uh, but I think that's a stupid question. Here's what's cool. And here's the last thing we see Jesus witness to about the character and nature of God in this text. They ask what I consider to be kind of a dumb question. It's sort of a panicky question, right? Uh, where are you staying? And Jesus doesn't go, you idiots, he doesn't go, that's the wrong question. You should be asking me how I will shed my blood for the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't turn it into something else. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't guilt them. He doesn't look down upon them or disown them. He doesn't walk away and say, come back and find me when you've got a better question. You know what Jesus says? You want to know where I'm staying? Come on, I'll show you. What's he showing us about who God is? Not only does God meet us where we are, but God also invites us to follow him, right? He invites us to come and have our questions answered, even our stupid questions. I got some stupid questions for God, right? And God doesn't look at me and go, you idiot. He goes, all right, I'm here. Let's go. They look at him and say, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. You know, there's kind of a debate in Christian circles about whether the church is meant to be missional or invitational. And those words might not mean anything to you, but there are some people on one side of the debate that says, oh, we have to be missional, which means that we gotta go out into the highways and the byways and we gotta meet people where they are. Jesus came toward us, right? God comes toward us. We gotta be like that. And then there's other people saying, no, 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 we just need to be invitation. We need to be inviting people into the community of faith. Not, we don't have to be going out. We've got to be inviting people in. Look, the bottom line is in this text, the Lord Jesus is both missional and invitational. He both meets people where they are, and then he invites them to follow him to where he's staying, right? He does both. He invites them to come and see where he's staying, and they follow him, and they stay with him. Here's what's really interesting. When they say to him, we want to know where you're staying, the word translated staying, it means abide or remain. It's the same word, mino, that when it talked about the Holy Spirit remaining on Christ, 
They look at Jesus and they say, where are you remaining? Where are you abiding? Here's what's interesting. Jesus, in essence, says, come, come with me and I'll show you my apartment, right? I'll show you the little house I'm staying in or whatever it was. Come with me and I'll show you where I'm staying for now. But follow me and eventually the place where I abide will be in you. Ephesians 3, Paul prays for us in Ephesians 3 and says, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, that the Lord Jesus will be settled down and at home in you. You see, Jesus has a a temporary dwelling in this story, and, and, and Andrew and possibly John go and see it. But where Jesus really wants to dwell is not in an apartment or not in a grandmother cottage or not in a tent someplace. Where Jesus is planning to dwell is in the hearts of those men. So they say to him, where are you staying? And he goes, come on and I'll show you, knowing full well that in the following of Christ, he will make his residence in them. That they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which only he can do. There is so much in this text about the grace and the patience of God, about the way he invites people in, about the way he answers even their stupid questions. There's so much in this text about Jesus' witness to the thing that really matters to God. What are you hungry for? There's so much in this text that speaks to Jesus moving towards those who are lost. But I want you to see this morning as we finish that even John and Jesus are not the only witnesses in the text. You see, because what we've seen as well, if you really think about it, what we've also seen in the text is that John the Baptist's witness is only possible because of the witness of the Father. And the witness of the Father is dependent upon the witness of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the nature of the Son, right? The Spirit comes and remains. So we have the the witness of the Father, the witness of the Spirit, the witness of John the Baptist to the witness of Christ who in turn is witnessing to us about what God is like and all of this is recorded for us because of the witness of John the Evangelist who is inspired by the witness of the Holy Spirit to write it down. What do we see? I mean, the title of my message today is A Witness to a Witness from a Witness because of a Witness for a Witness, right? It's going to look stupid on the website. (laughs) What's the point? The point is you and I have all been called to be ambassadors. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've been called to be witnesses, witnesses to the truth of who Christ is, witnesses to our personal experience, focusing people on the Lord Jesus. But this is a collaborative effort. God never calls us to be his witnesses by ourselves. Our witness is joined with the witness of the Father and the witness of the Spirit and the witness of the Son and the witness of the apostles and the witness of the prophets and the witness of God's word. All of these things are collaborative. And so when we take on the idea of going out to be a witness like John the Baptist to draw people to Christ, it's not a Lone Ranger mentality we need. It's not us going, hey, I'm going to be the one that goes out and change the world or this church is going to be the one to change this city. No, it's about us recognizing that our witness is holding hands with the witness of the Holy Trinity in conjunction with his word, in conjunction with the followers of Jesus that have gone before us, in conjunction with the church at large. That our witness is always meant to just be one part of a much larger collaborative witness where we get to join the work that God is doing. And if you're here this morning and you've come into this place with questions, you're looking for God, the great news for you is that he was already looking for you. That you don't have to find him, you don't have to hunt him down. Our God is moving toward you. And he's happy and ready to invite you to follow him, to have your questions answered, that you would know him, and that what you're hungry for would be transformed. That what you're hungry for would be transformed. That's what it means to be a witness of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a a focus and a centrality upon the Lord Jesus and the gospel. 
that you would make us selfless, that you would make us personal. God, that you would give us the ability to declare both the way in which you seek out the lost sheep, but also the ways in which you invite us to follow you. That you would help us to make manifest a a, a concern with the passion of people, the hunger of people, rather than just knowing more and more stuff about the Bible. That we would be able to ask ourselves the question, why are we here? What do we want? And that in the places where we find the answer to that, to be sinful or to be selfish, that I pray that you would transform what we're hungry for. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.